Watermark. It's great to be with this campus. Uh, as you heard, I typically get to hang out a little bit north here at Watermark Frisco, and it's a privilege to come back to the place that I started on staff and that God did a lot of work through me here um, around these folks, and really here in a minute just to thank you um, for all that you, Watermark the Body, have done to be an encouragement and resource for Watermark Frisco. But before I dive into all that, I know I don't know everybody in the room, so I'd love to just let you know a little bit more about myself. So here's a picture of my family. Uh, That is my wife, Allie, right there next to me. She is, as the Proverbs say, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. And it is a blast doing life with her best friends, get a journey through this whole thing together. We've got two kiddos there, as you see. Ramsey is in my arms with the funny face. Uh, She is always the life of the party. She's fun. She will make you laugh. And then Gunner there is in my wife's arms, and he is um, growing up underneath his sister's wing, um, not talking yet, but he is developing physically because she watches everything she does. So he will then monkey see, monkey do, and then uh, she does all the talking for him. So we have a blast. That's our family. We've actually got you to be praying for us. Baby number three on the way, due in April. And so we are uh, having a good time up in Frisco. Um, and, and so that's my favorite role outside of being a follower of Christ, is getting to be a husband, is getting to be a dad, but I do get to play the role um, of what I call just a servant or a campus pastor in Frisco. And uh, on behalf, really, of the Frisco campus, I would love to say thank you uh, to Watermark for the 20 years of faithfulness. For a lot of you in this room who have given a lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot of prayer, a lot of um, discipleship, and just God uh, in his kindness allowed Watermark to kind of spill out of this location and multiply it a few times. And we have greatly benefited from years of faithfulness. And so this past um, October, we celebrated two years in Frisco. Here's a few pictures of just what's going on and just a flyby overview that we get to meet and set up and tear down every week at Frisco High School. Um, so that's a lot of fun. We get to enjoy being together early in the morning, pushing around cases, starting things. We got to start a couple ministries in the middle of the COVID season. Uh, we're looking forward in January to starting a few more. And God is doing some amazing things. Watching people come to Christ. We're doing baptisms. We're seeing marriages saved. We're seeing everything you see here happen there. Because I know we're all serving the same God. And uh, just a disclaimer, some of those pictures were pre-COVID. So uh, you could save some of the emails. Don't worry, not all of those were taken in the last few weeks. Uh, but that's who I am. That's what I get to do. And that's what I get to watch. A living God do the same thing he's done for thousands of years uh, with the church, 20 years here specifically in the last two years at Watermark Frisco. And it's been a privilege. One of my favorite Proverbs to share with people is Proverbs 19.4, which just talks about house and wealth are inherited from your father, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. And so as um, riding with the brand, if you will, of Watermark, we have inherited a lot of stuff, a lot of resources, a team, um, facilities to meet in. But we all ultimately know it's because God is at work. And the text uh, we're going to be in today, and part of why I highlight that is um, 1 Timothy 4, as we continue in this series, 
And um, it's kind of a sweet text for me. The last time I was teaching 1 Timothy 4 at Watermark was about three years ago when a group of us were thinking about starting a campus at Watermark Frisco. And so I was just on staff in Dallas at the time. I had in my heart kind of this idea of potentially leading one day. And Kyle Kegler over there at the Plano campus was meeting with the Frisco folks, just saying, here's what it takes to be the church. And they were studying 1 Timothy. And as I was just around and along for the ride to learn and just be equipped myself, they said, hey, why don't you get up there and teach one week? And the text they gave me was 1 Timothy 4. So this text keeps popping up in my journey around Watermark, which is fun. Uh, But I will tell you, I have had the privilege of having a front row seat for the past two years to a group of people Uh, more narrowly, the Frisco campus, take 1 Timothy seriously and specifically 1 Timothy 4. And I've watched God go to work. So it is fun for me to teach you what I am experiencing God doing up at Watermark Frisco. And uh, before we dive into uh, all the way into the text and teaching and exhortation, um, it would be crazy for us not to just read the text together, especially because within the text we're going to learn from, it says, uh, be sure to publicly read the Word of God. So let me just listen to the scripture we're going to be together. So I would love to read 1 Timothy 4 with you. That'll be on the screen. If you've got your Bible, you can pop it open, and then we'll get busy with um, just some applications from the text. But here we go. 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, the teaching of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to receive with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. For the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Lord, would you just help us pay attention to your word? Would you use our next time together to show us what you want us to learn? I thank you that uh, your word is living and active. It is truth. It is sanctifying. It doesn't return void. That we don't know you because of the wisdom of man. We know you because of the power of the gospel. So would you enlighten this to our hearts and encourage us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, part of why I, I love this text is because folks are um, constantly watching in the world and going, what, what is wrong with Christians? What is wrong with God? 
If we just studied last week how we as the church are the pillar and the foundation of truth, we are the attracting force for the gospel. The way you live your life will be a means to bring people to God and you are also the foundation on which the truth stands, meaning you kind of stand to give a reason for the hope that you have. And that's what the church is and the church is stands up for the truth and truth is not a set of facts. It's not something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's not something, it's someone, it's Jesus. That if God himself says, okay, I'm going to use broken, fallen people and a perfect message in my Holy Spirit to go to work in the world today, don't you think an enemy would be um, attacking the church? And the enemy doesn't play games, he plays for keeps. And Paul just made the church a really big deal. And it's like he's moving on to chapter four and he goes, I want you to know Timothy. And this is how I would title chapter four to break all that we um, just read here. I'll break it up into two chunks for you to help you. But I would title chapter four, instructions on how to protect the church. I think because we haven't always got this right, um, you see pastors falling like flies. You see um, people who take the name of Christ, but live the same way as anybody who doesn't even know who Christ is. I think when we apply this text, study this text, learn this text, believe this text, it will bring vitality and immunity back into the church. It will be a source of health for you, for our body, and keep us being the light of the world we want to be, the salt of the earth that we want to continue to preserve this world. All of that, I think, is wrapped up in 1 Timothy 4, and I'm going to do my best to tell you why I believe that. So if I could break this whole chapter into two big chunks just to help us as we move through it, I'd, I'd say the first six verses are how you protect the church from others, from those outside the church. In verses, uh, sorry, that'd be verses one through five. In verses six through 16, I would say this is how you protect the church from yourself. And so there are uh, enemies abroad and domestically and within. So there's not only people going to attack from outside, but you better be careful because those on the inside can become a problem, namely you, Timothy. And so we're going to dive into all that. So those first two verses, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through people, through humans, okay, through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared. And when I hear words like um, teachings of demons and deceitful spirits, my, my mind goes to um, cult-like practices and people hiding out in dark corners of the world and um, doing bizarre-looking things. I think the first thing Paul's going to say is, hey, uh, just so you know, when the teaching of the enemy comes through, when lies come through, they're not going to just be noticeable by what you can see. Okay, don't be surprised when false teachers and deceitful people look just like you. And uh, they may have some of the same methods you do. They may use a microphone and a podium and certain words that you use. So just don't be surprised when they look the same. You've got to go deeper than that. You've got to actually listen to the message. You've got to listen to the substance of what's being communicated, not just the speaker himself being drawn away or pulled off sides by slick words or wittiness or familiarity. You've got to pay attention. So the warning I would just give us as we move through is false teachers will often look the same, but they will not sound the same. So pay attention to the content 
and um, don't look just at the communicator. And what was, what was the specific content of these folks who were leading and teaching the opposite of what God would have for his people? In verse 3, it tells us uh, that these folks were teaching, um, it says, it reads it like this, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So they were teaching an unbiblical um, abstinence from things that God created, namely in this instance, marriage and meals. Now, I actually ironically was at a wedding last night where I was watching a marriage happen before my eyes and we rolled in there and I had shrimp, bacon, both of those at once, chicken and steak. And uh, I'm I'm taking these bites of this food and I'm watching these people um, give their vows and express their love and that they're going to lay down their lives for each other. And I'm looking at those things going, okay, uh, I've been studying this for a little while. These things were created by God. And uh, why does this become such a big deal to Paul in this text? And the reason uh, this becomes a, good, uh, a big deal to Paul is not because these are just simply words that he's teaching. This is really a paradigm and an understanding of who God is. When we take the things created by God and call them evil in and of themselves, we're not making a statement about the creation. We are making a statement about its creator. So to call marriage that God created evil is to say some evil um, person or thing or deity created that. To take food and declare it as evil is to say whoever created that food, the source of that food is evil. That's why it says in verse 4, it reads, this, uh, reads it this way, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected without, uh, if it is received with thanksgiving. So we're not making statements about food. We're not making statements about marriage. We are making statements about the character of God and who he is. It's why in places like 2 Corinthians 10, 5, you'll hear um, we are to take every argument and lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You ought to refute people when they talk about God in a false way. And that was showing up here through these um, false teachers by um, abstaining from marriage and abstaining from certain kind of foods. So what's at stake is who God really is and what he's like. So I don't know what your view of God is, but I hope this starts to inform you that when you are sitting around the Thanksgiving um, table and you're eating some good food, hopefully, uh, you take a bite of that and you go, man, where did this food come from? Who created this food? Because this food is good. Now, if you get the wrong chef in the kitchen, this will mess it up, okay? Uh, But food in and of itself is good, and it's a source of nutrients, and it provides for you what you need. And when we eat food, it ought to go, man, that's who God is. He's good. He gives us things that are enjoyable, and they're satisfying, and they give us the fuel we need to live life. So it's a picture of who God is. I didn't... didn't, uh, get a degree in apologetics, okay? But when I think about marriage and everything that happens within the context of marriage according to God, I think there's a pretty good argument to the goodness of God when you think about physical intimacy, okay? I know some people are watching at home with their families around uh, the TV and younger ones in here. So um, when you think about physical intimacy within marriage, uh, that's a good thing. We have given that over to the world to define. We act like in the church sometimes that it's taboo 
a taboo to talk about that subject. But you need to talk about that subject for the good thing that it is because it came from a good creator. And I don't know about you, but that seems to make a pretty strong argument that God is good because he created physical intimacy and he created relationships. If we've learned anything in the last kind of shut down season, it's the value and the warmth and the beauty of relationships. Who created that? Well, the good God created that. So you start to see why this was a big deal to Paul because we're not making statements about marriage and meals. We're making statements about God. And this is why I think he inserts uh, verse five here because he doesn't want us to overcorrect. So he says, hey, for everything is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And he's correcting a certain kind of teaching, but he knows we're gonna be tempted to take that teaching and overcorrect from his correction. And the way I wrote this down is don't use Paul's correction of legalism to be your tool of licentiousness, okay? Uh, just because it is a good thing in and of itself doesn't mean it's good all the time. And uh, just because God made it doesn't mean when we assign different purposes to it that we can't twist it and use it for evil, okay? That's why he says, hey, these things will be um, remained as holy or set aside as holy and glorifying to God if you take God's word and you understand what he would have you do with his good creation. So if he created it, he gets to determine its use. And when we use it in the ways he doesn't create it, it is not good. This is what Titus 1 through 14 through 16 is all about. He's trying to teach this very um, subject. And it says um, this, that not devoting themselves to Jewish myths or commands of people who turn away from the truth to the pure so listen to the pure all things are pure to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure but both their minds and their conscience are defiled they profess to know God but they deny him by their works they are detestable disobedient unfit for any good work the problem is not the creation it's whose hands the creation is in that's why for the pure, everything is pure because they use it in the way that God would want them. They understand God's word. They have sanctified it or made it holy through scripture. And that's why it says the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even though they use things like marriage or physical intimacy or relationships or food or alcohol, and they use those things however they want, and it is not pure for them because it has not been sanctified by the word of God. And when it says sanctified by the word of God in prayer, this is the way you can think about prayer. If we had a longer time, those first five verses keep saying this word of thankfulness. And um, anytime you study scripture or prayer throughout scripture, often the theme of thankfulness shows up hand in hand with prayer, which is to say, every time you're talking to God, you have something to thank God for, no matter what's going on. But um, when I think about that in this context, I think about whatever decision I'm making, whatever part of God's creation I'm interacting with, if I can't look God in the eyes and say, thank you, I know that I'm probably not using it the right way. Those things that sometimes we um, hide from other people, that we don't tell our community group, that we do kind of when no one's looking, or that we hope doesn't show up on our um, social media posts and all of those kind of things. The things we hide, the things you can't look God in these, the eyes through prayer and say thank you is probably a good indication for you that you're not using it in the way that God would have you. So the conclusion of all that, um, we protect the church when we use God's things, God's way, 
and refute those who teach otherwise. When we use God's things, God's ways, and refute those who teach otherwise. And so we're going to shift now to those back um, 10 verses. And when you think about, we're going to move into protecting the church from yourself. But it's interesting because right here, um, Paul's going to shift from these folks who are outside the church to, to Timothy. And he's going to start to warn Timothy about things he can do uh, to be a hazard or a hinder or even a destruction to the church. And uh, it's interesting, in those first five verses, those false teachers, there's a pretty good case to be made that they were actually elders in the church before they departed because of the content of chapter 3 and some of what happens in chapter 5 with the rebuking of the elders. Some people make the case these folks who drifted and departed were elders. If anything, they were certainly leaders because they were partaking in teaching, which was part of the role of a leader. Which is to say, it doesn't matter what position you have, what your title is, how long you've been around the game, anybody is deceptible to their flesh. And he's going, hey, Timothy, you've trained with me. Um, You've been a part of this ministry. You've been sent as the pastor. And guess what? Even you can be a destruction to to the church. So here's how you can be a protection from yourself. Now, if that is true for Timothy, the leader, the pastor, the, product, um, the guy who trained underneath Paul, how much more true could it be for me and for us? And so this teaching that's about to come is not just for Timothy, it's for the church, and it's for the church today. So here's how you can protect the church from yourself, verse 6. He says, if you put these things before the brothers... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Before he gets into all of the application and commands that you heard a second ago, he's going to talk about the desire and the willingness to be a good servant of Christ. And you've got to catch this because nothing else matters after here if it's not flowing from a desire to be a servant of Christ. So if you're visiting or maybe you don't know um, Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and you're here checking things out, uh, the rest of this text and the rest of what I'm going to say is not going to have a ton of application for you. Verse 6 is where you need to hang out and just figure out if you want to be a servant of Christ. And as a reminder for the church, for us, this is not about how you become a son of Christ or a daughter of Christ. This is not about your salvation This is what you do if your desire is to serve Christ. The next teaching we're about to go through is a response to what God has done for you. We are not working to God. We are working out of a relationship with God. Because we can't miss that as we dive in to some pretty thick application and teaching. And so um, the little conclusion there is that we will protect the church from ourselves when we prioritize Christ. And um, as he goes on and he's about to teach, some folks will say, you know what, this is great teaching for a leader, uh, for, for Timothy, but I'm still not fully convinced this really applies to me. And so I just want to unpack or address that thought real quick and remind you uh, that leaders are examples to follow. They are not exceptions used to rationalize disobedience. So God instills elders and he instills leaders in the church so you can know what your life ought to look like. There's not a single characteristic in 1 Timothy 3, which is the qualifications for an elder, that is not asked and commanded of any believer. 
You're an elder or a leader so you can be lifted up so people can go, hey, what am I supposed to be like as I follow Jesus? Oh yeah, this is my living reminder. They're living out the text. But it is what God desires for every Christian. So this is not just for Timothy so we can kind of rationalize living how we want to live because we're not leaders or don't have certain titles. The other way I say it is obedience is not determined by your office, okay? It's determined by a relationship with Christ and a desire to be a good servant. That's why 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Leaders are examples, okay? So whatever you see true of a leader is true for you when it comes to character and pursuit of Christ. So what does he command this leader and this Christian and this disciple of Christ to do? In verse 7 through 9, he says this, have nothing to do with irrelevant silliness, but rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way because it holds promise for this life and also the life to come. And he's going to double, he's going to put the exclamation point on that in verse 9 and say, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And so the emphasis of that text is godliness. And what is godliness? Defining that is really helpful. I'll share with you a term that I've just found personally to be the easiest to remember and the most clear. And it comes from a guy named Donald Whitney who wrote a book about spiritual disciplines that I would highly encourage anybody to read. But the way he kind of summarizes the idea of godliness is he uses two C's, and that's why it's easy to remember. He defines godliness as a closeness to Christ and a conformity to Christ. And so the first half, closeness to Christ, that is relational. The things you are training, the things you do to train ought to produce in you a deeper relationship with God. If the result of whatever he means by training is not intimacy with the God of the universe, then you aren't training for the right reasons. It's not leading you to what it's meant to lead you to, which is Christ. He is the reward. He is the end of the means of training. Okay, that is what closeness of Christ and and the idea of godliness is. And then conformity of Christ, he's just saying, hey, uh, and when you train these ways, you ought to look more like Jesus. And that's our goal as Christians or as little Christ is to be representatives of Christ to the world. We're his ambassadors. We are his image bearers in that sense. We are what he's left here to proclaim. That's what a lot of last week was all about. So he's saying this is the end and you can't miss that. But then he's going to use this word train. And, and I don't know about you, but that's not always a word uh, I think of when I think about my relationship with God, but it's good imagery because it means you're not always going to feel like it. It's not always going to be what you think it's going to be. There's days you're going to wake up and go to practice when you don't want to go to practice. There's days you're going to go through a practice and not going to feel like much changed. In fact, you may do practice, practice, practice every day and you don't, sense, you don't have a sense of getting any better. Sometimes the spiritual life in your walk with God is going to feel a little bit like training, like an athlete. Later in 2 Timothy, when Paul writes another letter to the same guy, he's going to use some similar metaphors. He's going to say, hey, just to remind you, Timothy, um, your life is like a soldier. Okay, you are responding to a commanding officer. Your life is like a farmer, a hardworking farmer. Your life is like an athlete who competes according to the rules. These are the languages, the language used and the descriptions used and the imagery used to talk about our relationship with God. It takes 
time and energy. But God intends for you to know the path to have intimacy with him. He's not left us here to figure it out. You don't have to guess. Okay, this is not um, looking under rocks to see what works. There are predetermined paths for you to have a deep relationship with God and become more like Christ. That's what you train in. We call them spiritual disciplines. Okay, when we talk about devoting daily, which is the first core value of community here, of every member of something you do, this is the idea we have in mind. Devote, okay, practice these things, immerse yourselves in them, is language he's going to use, train. So uh, just a few outline of what that may look like. Uh, the first has to do with when you go to train, when you go to deepen in a walk with God, it has to do with your Bible. Okay, that means you study this, that means uh, you memorize this, you meditate on this, and you apply this. Okay, that's how you train. It has to do with prayer, which is communicating to God, which is responding to him, which is talking to him. It has to do with fasting. That's something we did corporately a few weeks ago. That's a means for you that God has predetermined when you walk down that road with faith, you will grow more like Christ and deepen a relationship with him. And I will go to bat that this church has more resources than I know of any other church as a means for you to train. I am a walking proof of that. I've tried to avail myself to everything that Watermark has to offer. There is plenty for you. If there's anything you need help training, do not leave today with figuring out all the resources and abundance that are here to help you do that. Because we exist to make disciples and to come alongside you as you walk with Christ. Okay, so we have to train. God wants you to have a deep relationship with him. He's shown you the way. The question is, will we walk down the way? Will we train. How we answer this, how we live our lives will be how we protect the church. So the conclusion there is we protect the church from ourselves when we train for godliness. Next little piece of scripture here talks about in verse 11 and 12 that we should, um, to Timothy, you should command and teach these things and set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. And he's going to say, don't let anybody despise you, Timothy, for your youth. I have a particularly unique relationship with this text, okay? Uh, one of the questions I know most people have that they never ask me is, how old are you? And the reason I know that is because in Frisco, when I get done doing something more upfront, and after there's uh, usually a conversation or some sort of relationship built with folks, they'll come down and they'll ask me, you know, after our conversation, how old are you? And every time I'm in these conversations, um, I can usually sense when the question's coming. So I kind of play this game with myself. Uh, how long until they ask me how old I am? And uh, eventually they ask me and they get to the question. I tell them I'm 27 and a half. You know, if, if the half helps you, uh, my daughter throws that in. So I figured it's good for me too, throwing the half. And, uh, and then I'll just go from there and say, you know, I was wondering, how old are you? You know, and that usually turns to a pretty good conversation from there. No, I don't ask the last part always. Um, but it is a good just, uh, there is something about this. And, and there is an encouragement here that I do want us to walk away with. Um, Paul, when he's talking to Timothy and say, hey, no, n not only is your youth um, not an appropriate excuse for not having a deep relationship with Christ and looking for him, I'm actually expecting you to look like Christ and have a deep relationship with him. So our problem 
when we view the youth certain ways, when we talk about millennials or Generation Z, our problem is not our view with the youth. It really is the God of the youth that we have a bad view of. What we're saying inevitably is that God can't use young people. And I know we don't always mean to say that, but sometimes that's the way it comes across. And I will tell you, Paul is eliminating that excuse here. And if he's eliminating the excuse of youth, I tend to think it really eliminates all other excuses because the most legitimate excuse there is, is time. And those who are most handicapped by time are the youth. And what I think God has done throughout all of scripture, I'm going to show you some more examples, is he's used the youth in ways because I think he wants people to know what determines being used by God is not your age. And if age is not what determines being used by God, then a lot of the other things we usually talk about aren't very good excuses either. So there's some few uh, spots in scripture. If we just fly by our Old Testament into our new, you can go into Genesis. You see a guy named Joseph who was 17 years old, who was sold into slavery, who um, had a pretty rough go at life, thrown in a prison cell, and he sets an example in conduct and in faith in the way he walks with God through that scenario. You can look at the book, or the um, Queen Esther, who was young, and her example. You can look at Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and Perhaps, and I want to read this one to you, the craziest one I've found in Scripture personally is a guy named Josiah. And he was eight years old when he became king. Read this with me. In 2 Chronicles 34, 1 through 3, it says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left, and in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek God, uh, the God of his father, David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem. So here's what you need to know. Folks who uh, don't look to the left and to the right, who seek God, are the kind of individuals God uses. When Josiah showed up, Israel for 70 years had been living in disobedience. And God plucks an eight-year-old out and uses him to change a nation's trajectory, an eight-year-old. I don't have to look any further than my own personal community group. Um, In our community group, we have a 13-year-old named Hudson Ramsey. Hudson, to me, is perhaps the greatest and most faithful evangelist we have at Watermark. Every time we go out to eat as a community group, this 13-year-old, and he's sitting with pastors and the campus shepherds of our campus, and he's the guy engaging and sharing the gospel with the waiter or waitress. I was actually mentioning his name to the staff this week, and two other of the staff go, yeah, we were with Hudson a couple weeks ago, and when we were with Hudson, he was sharing the gospel. And I go, amen, and he's 13, because the living God of Josiah and the eight-year-old is the living God of Hudson. He's doing the same thing. You can look at stories of David, who was crowned or anointed king at 15. And one of my favorite verses from David is Psalm 119, 99 through 100. This is the kind of person God uses, people who have more understanding than all their teachers, because God's testimonies are their meditations. And he understands it more than the age because he keeps his precepts. That's why David had a pretty good run off the bat because he believed that. And again, I look down at our campus and I see um, young gals, a gal named Steph, who's 20 years old, who became a, a Christ follower less than two years ago. 
But every day she wakes up, she pursues the Lord. She goes, what do you want me to do today? She gets on her knees and she is attentive. And she is one of the um, most healthy individuals of our campus. She leads her community group. She doesn't let the fact that she's 20 or came to know Christ two years ago dictate her faithfulness today. And she was actually sharing a story this week with our staff, how she was sharing the gospel with a gal in Frisco whose life had just kind of been beat up and was bruised. And there was Steph, a gal who sought God, who understood who God was and believed him. And God was using right there in our city. Those are the folks that God uses, not old or young. And when I mean old, I mean old too. I mean, part of why I think God uses this because most of us probably have um, folks we've been praying for for a while who don't know Jesus and who are um, maybe a little bit down the road in life. Maybe you're going to be with them for Thanksgiving. And there's that temptation to just think, well, man, will they ever really be used by God or will they ever even walk with Christ? And I'll just tell you, there's a guy that I've been encouraged by this week, Ivan. Ivan is a guy who for 40 years, from 15 to really 59, uh, did whatever he wanted, chased everything the world had to offer, found himself in multiple relationships, multiple bad situations, addicted, addicted, addicted to alcohol. And then at 59, really started walking with Jesus. And for the last decade, Ivan's been plugged in here at Watermark, serving, training for godliness. And now there's multiple guys in leadership positions that will say, hey, Ivan is a big reason I'm where I'm at. And that's a guy who at 59, after a hard life, finally gave his life to Christ and it didn't take long for God to start to use him. So I hope you're encouraged. We talk a ton about how painful sin can be and how destructive it can be, which it can be, but it's not near as powerful as righteousness because the enemy is not as strong as God. So our wickedness and our rebellion will have a consequence, but you will be amazed at what God can do in a short amount of time. He'll do it with 8-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 27-half-year-olds, 59-year-olds, 69, and everything in between. Because that's who God is. It's never too early nor too late to be used by God. It's never too early. It's never too late. I pray this changes the conversations you have with family around the Thanksgiving table. We will protect the church from ourselves when we put aside excuses. So one, one last, I want to make one last note in these last four verses of a way that we can protect the church from ourselves. Verse 13 through 16 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and the hearers. And, and what I love about this, because um, Timothy does have a unique gift. I mean, he had a teaching and leadership gift that not everybody has. We know that everybody who comes to a real saving faith in Christ is indwelt by the Spirit and is, is sealed by the Spirit and is also gifted by the Spirit the moment you become a believer. Every Christian has spiritual gifts. Timothy's may be different than yours. Ours, mine, and yours may be different. But when God puts a leader in place 
to use their gifts, he does so so that the body in the church and Christians are set up to use their gifts. So when a leader uses their gifts, you're set up to use yours. Uh, when people ask me what my job is, I just turn to Ephesians 4.12 and read it to them. My job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of Christ. That's my role, that I get to serve you, the body, and equip you to unleash you, unleash you to use your gifts. And I think about those words, don't neglect the gift that you have. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. That is true for you in the way that God has gifted you. And he gifted you to build up the church, 1 Peter 4 says. But if I could highlight just the principle at play, I think when we neglect our gifts and the use of them, it would come out of Proverbs 18, 9, which says, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. So it's a lot easier to see somebody who's tearing something down, something that already exists and is going out and destroying that. But the principle is, hey, the thing that could be built is not being built because you're not engaging or you're being slack with the gifts that God has given you. And so my encouragement to us would be to engage with our gifts. We will protect the church from destruction when we aren't apathetic with our spiritual gifts. So just to remind you, Paul wrote this because he sees what Christ is doing and who he's doing it through the church. He knows the enemy plays for keeps and is going to attack the church. So he goes, hey church, be protected. Protect the church from others using God's things, God's ways. Don't be legalistic or licentious. Use God's word in prayer. That's how you protect from others. How do you protect the church from yourself? Prioritize Christ and seek to be good servants of him. Train, train for godliness, seeing Christ as our end game and as the reward. Let's put aside excuses. And then let's engage with our gifts and not be apathetic with them. And I'll just close with this idea that if Jesus gave his life for the church, we should give ours to protect her. Pray with me. Lord, um, I can read this and dive through it and it feels like a lot. And there's so many different ways to apply it. But I thank you, Lord, that we are not working towards sonship. We are working to be good servants of you. Thank you that our salvation has nothing to do with our efforts. Christ, that you and your effort and your work and your completeness is where we find our salvation. And Lord, would you help us understand more your grace and your love and your steadfastness towards us? And would it build up and boil up in us a desire to respond with a life of worship and of gratitude and of service? And would we toil and would we strive and would we practice and would we immerse ourselves? in these things. And God, would we humbly walk with you that our eyes wouldn't be taken off the prize, which is you. And whatever you want to do with our obedience, do it. But we thank you, God, that we have a relationship with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, let's, let's stand. Make sure you have your mask on. But let's stand and respond in worship, in song and in lyric. So don't just sing these songs, pray them. Let's sing.